Hey there. Hey. All right. Hail. Hail, hail. The gang's all gang's here. Gang's all here. <laughs> oh, I guess. It's not something that's exactly a given these days, it feels like. <laughs> oh, We're here week, physically. Man. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I think right now I still physically, like I'm physically in my office, but I'm also mentally back in my bed. <laughs> so. Oh. All right. That's... Well, um, anyway, the... The reason that we're all here today is to hear from our friend Nick and um, hear about what Nick does. Yeah, so I mean, we both kind of know what Nick does because he he really does try to make us understand and hopefully today we'll like <laughs> fully grasp it. But what do you think Nick does? Well, he he dropped a couple of words the other day that I was like, I'm sorry, what? Cause I've uh, oh no. <laughs> I've always been under the impression that he is in finance. And so in my head, I'm like, oh, okay, well he sits there, he balances budgets, he lives in Excel. And then he starts talking to me the other day about how he is in supply chain. And I was like, I'm sorry, what Elliot, finance and supply chain? Like, are, did you change jobs? Like, did I just have no idea what you did in the first <laughs> place? Like, <laughs> Um, and then um, business development and like all of these things can really all be together. But also, am I just wrong about what I thought? Like, I don't know. I guess we'll find out. I think you're on the right track. That's about what I would have guessed, too. But I would add like, and Nick does this naturally, too, where he networks a lot. But I think part of his job is networking with different companies to see if um, like his company can represent them. So is he an account manager then? Mm. <laughs> that doesn't sound right to me i think he does that well i don't know i feel like he's our version of chandler bing where everybody kind of knows what he does but like nobody <laughs> knows exactly what he does <laughs> couldn't sit down on like sit down and say like well what does like chandler bing do for a job and it's like oh <laughs> doesn't he do something not chandler nick doesn't nick do something with like startup companies um I want to say he does work. He works in venture capitalism. Maybe <laughs> he talked right. about it. Did he? Did it go through? I'm not sure. Um, yeah. Well, we'll you know learn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, we're gonna take a brief break, and then we'll be right back, and everybody can get to know our friend group version of Chandler Bing. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Hey, Nick. Hey, howdy. <laughs> How are you howdy. adjusting? Good. I'm excited for Duncan's wedding. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, I hope you have a great time. Thank you. Love Duncan. Oh. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're a fun couple. I feel like you're going to have a fantastic time. All right. Well, we are here, like, as much as it's great to hear about <laughs> Nick and his social life and the fact that he is getting ready to be in one of his best friend's wedding. So what, what, but we're also here to talk about what Nick does for a living. Um, so Nick, why don't you start out by telling us what do you do? Yeah. So I work in corporate development, which means I focus on the development of the corporate and there will be no further <laughs> questions. 
<laughs> no. no. <laughs> so, All right. Well, I guess we're done here. <laughs> so corporate development is really focused on unlocking and analyzing the inorganic growth profile and growth of a company. And so inorganic, what does that mean? Does whatever I do, can I not sell it at Whole Foods? No, that's yeah, not that's what. Like you don't use fertilizer. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what inorganic uh, so think about organic growth as kind of like the normal growth profile or trajectory of a company. So if so you're like, if nobody has anything to do with it, it just kind of is like operating on its own. Yes, exactly. Okay. And then inorganic would be making strategic moves or positions to unlock additional growth that would not be normally uh, positioned for you. Uh, think about it. Amazon buying Whole Foods, Amazon buying MGM Studios. So like Whole Foods was not originally part of like Amazon's traditional growth trajectory or organic growth. And so they acquired another company and used that uh, new company to provide strategic value to their customers. Okay, I'm, I'm tracking. And so I understand now like inorganic growth but what part do you play in that puzzle yeah so i think about it if i was a company manufacturing widgets um, <laughs> so widget i had to look this up if you go to business school which i, I graduated with an undergrad uh degree uh in finance and so i looked it up a widget is a device a small device or gadget. And so every case study or company example we use looked at uh, widgets. And so if you <laughs> Not have- Not the most creative group of people, the ones who write the case studies. Widgets are like little like squares on whatever internet page you're looking at that do their own thing, Sometimes. Right? It whatever. can be a lot of different things. That's why they use a widget. Like it's just like a thingamabob. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, there's digital widgets. I had to look up what an actual widget was. Uh, but if you have like a factory that manufactures widgets, like your capacity of the amount of widgets you can produce or manufacture is pretty capped at like your capacity if you have just one manufacturing line. And so my group would be engaged if you wanted to build more widgets and expand. How do you expand? Do you build another factory? What does that entail? Do you acquire another company that manufactures widgets and so you have more manufacturing operations? Do huh. you just lease another manufacturing facility and build that out? So there's all these different strategic rationales. And so if you're manufacturing widgets and you're organic, your normal growth profile, let's say you make $30 million of profit per year, but it costs... But if it costs $200 million to build a factory to widgets, it's how not do you gonna go? break even? <laughs> yeah. So you have to understand the rationale of how do I finance a new manufacturing facility? Do I raise debt? Uh, so do I raise equity? So equity is kind of, if you think about a house, like your traditional mortgage, if you buy a house and you put 20% down, that is what equity you have in the house. And then the 80% that the bank is giving you is debt or the mortgage. And so it's very similar. Uh, so when you're building a new factory, you're thinking through, okay, how much debt do I raise? How much equity do I raise? 
what does a new company look like if I double my manufacturing facility instead of 10 million widgets I'm producing in year one and producing 20 million widgets tomorrow? What does that cost look like? What does my earnings profile look like? And how do I convince people to give me debt and equity? People just don't go around throwing money at you. So um, there's a lot of just like small nuances that you have to work through. Okay. I understand now why you said the other day that you work in supply chain. That makes a lot more sense. All right. So Nick, how did you kind of come about getting into this particular type of role? This feels kind of almost a little like on the niche side. Yeah. However you want to say it. Yeah. So corporate development, it's very similar. It's like being an in-house investment banker for a company because you have to run a lot of financial models. So Think about the model, not as someone who's walking down the runway, but as a. <laughs> Damn it. We forgot to mention that Nick is like the master of puns. So you're probably going to hear 50 during this interview. <laughs> Used to do some stand up. <laughs> so it's not a model is not like someone who walks down the runway, like modeling. Goes. A model can just be a forecast for a given anything that's forecasted. That's basically what a model is. <laughs> build really complex financial models in Excel. Um, so oh my you, gosh. So you need really strong like technical finance skills, accounting skills, Excel skills. So the way I kind of got into this niche role of corporate development was I went through the traditional like investment banking path. So I spent four years of my career out, out of college uh, doing more just like traditional investment banking processes investment banking is a very broad topic and you hear a lot about investment bankers in the news and the media people don't really know what investment bankers do outside of making lots of money and working in crazy insane hours and it's not wolf of wall street by any means it's an investment banker is hired by a company because investment bankers are kind of the gateways between investors that have a lot of money to invest and companies that need money and so they're kind of the matchmaker or the broker middleman the middleman of matching a company that needs a lot of money with investors that have a lot of money to give. And so there's a lot of technical pieces that go into that process of understanding a company's valuation, understanding a company's cash profile, being able to analyze historical data, make assumptions in a future finance model to understand, okay, I understand what this company is worth today. What does that company how do I value that company in one year, three years, five years, based on all the different, um, the growth pro- profile of the company, the strategy of the company, the industry there, all those nuances. And so half, about 50% of banking is the technical hard side of, okay, I have a lot of numbers, I have a lot of analysis I need to do. I need to have legal contracts between the people giving me money and the money to give. And then also it's 50% of just how do you manage a timeline? Um, How do you manage people, stakeholders? How do you manage having a hundred different things done within a week to make sure that money can be sent from investor A to company A uh, within a short timeframe? So it's kind of, it's, even though people think investment banking, it's Excel, it's people sitting on like a, trading desk in New York, it's a lot of soft skills that you have to manage and people skills. And that's kind of what gets lost. And it's, just, it's managing people at the end of the day. That's so interesting to hear because you're right. Brittany and I actually, when we filmed our, our intro, I said, I think it's going to be a lot of Excel. Like that to me is like what 
finance does. They balance spreadsheets, <laughs> basically. And so the fact that you're coming in and saying, like, yeah, there is that. Also, you kind of unlocked this, like, repressed memory that I had of my, like, forecasting class in business school. <laughs> Not a great time. So I can't imagine doing that on a daily basis. But um, it's it's interesting to hear how much like how many soft skills are really involved in being able to do your job and do it effectively. Because that does sound like something that requires a tremendous amount of communication. And while I do assume that you're probably talking to some pretty intelligent people who speak, you know, kind of roughly the same business finance language, you also have to be able to kind of translate these really complex models into layman's terms. Yes, that, that's exactly right. So like for a given deal, if, a comp- if that manufacturing facility, that company that manufactures widgets, if they're building another factory, we said it was $200 million that they spend. So they're raising money through, they hired an investment bank. So they have an investment bank that they're raising money through. And so that corporate development team for that widget uh, manufacturing facility company um, they need to understand who their audience is. And let's say they have two weeks to get the money because they need to break land on that new manufacturing facility in two weeks because they have a firm deadline. So they need to understand, like, you're going to be talking to an investment bank. You're going to be talking to investors that maybe those investors are really smart finance people. Maybe those investors have never heard what a widget is or don't understand, like, manufacturing processes. Um, So you have to be able to able to sell your story of a company of why you need the money how having a second factory is going to unlock incremental growth to your company and so if you think about a company like a widget manufacturing facility you have like facilities directors you have insurance premiums that you're paying you have variable costs that make one widget and you have fixed costs and so as you grow and expand uh your your sales are going to increase or your top line the revenue that you bring in and then as your revenue increases more than what your fixed cost is, you don't need as many accountants to have two facilities that you do one. So your earnings is going to go up, um, assuming that you can cover your fixed cost base. And so it's telling that story to investors that maybe know widget manufacturing really well, maybe don't. Um, it's telling that story to the investment bank. And then you're working with a variety of different stakeholders. You're working with legal teams. So I work with a lot of lawyers that, People just don't give you money and say, okay, here's $200 million. There's usually a 100 to 300 page, like, legal (laughs) A couple of stipulations. Yeah, it makes sense. (laughs) There's a couple of stipulations that come with giving you $200 million to a company. Maybe a couple. Just just a few. Yeah. So you have to be able to sell your story of here's the my business profile, here's what my business profile looks like in three years uh, with this new manufacturing facility for widgets, selling that story to the investment bank, to investors, understanding the business terms that you need communicated to your legal teams and managing all those stakeholders kind of concurrently. So you you say, oh, okay, go on, Brett. (laughs) I was going to say, you, Nick, specifically do all of these things? Like, are you just describing like, your job or are you telling us like everything that you have to deal with so this is basically the job that a corporate development person gotcha okay i was gonna be like dang all the <laughs> get it feel done um I sorry i threw you off your groove <laughs> i can't remember 
So Nick, obviously like you're dealing with, um, or someone in that role would be dealing with a lot of like people who are probably not super trusting of others with 300 page legal documents. Um, and everyone kind of wants something from each other. What kind of like schmoozing or like, (laughs) how, how do you make this as easy as it can be as painless as possible? Yeah. So a big thing about this job of someone that goes into corporate development or someone that starts in investment banking and makes their way up into corporate development is the kind of skill set you need. You have to have really strong analytical skills. You have to be very thorough and have a great attention to detail. And so you're going to have lots of data from the company that you need to parse through, look at, analyze. And so basically, there's kind of an unwritten code if you go through a deal fundraising process or mergers to acquisition uh, process of these are the 30 things investors are going to look at uh, when they're investing in your company. And so it's a lot of topics that Caroline touched in in her previous podcast talking about marketing. If you have sales funnels, sales pipelines, you're going to have data on your customers, data on your fixed cost base. You're going to have historical financial detail that you're going to give. You're going to give these investors a five-year financial forecast model of, okay, maybe my earnings is $30 million today. My earnings is going to be $300 million in year five. And how do I bridge from the $30 million of earnings today to that $300 million of earnings? And you do that through a financial forecast. And so you have to be able to communicate all the assumptions that you have yes okay, how do I go from earnings to 10x earnings in five years? Uh, What's the story there? What's all the drivers and assumptions to get to that financial profile in five years? And based on that financial profile, people can lend me money, people can lend me equity, and understanding all the different, um, how that financial forecast uh, parlays into the investor's story. And so to have all those skills, to be able to put together that investor package you're going to give someone basically access to about 50 different uh, key files of Excel data of here's all the relevant uh, historical information on our company that you need. Here's all the trends and here's all the drivers of those trends of, okay, our headcount's gone from 10 to 50 in the past year. Here's the know why. Okay, our fixed cost base or our cost to make one widget has gone from $3 uh, two years ago to $1.50 uh, this year. Here's the know why behind that. So understanding basically any detail that could go into the value of your company, the corporate development team is taking that data, analyzing that data, understanding the key trends behind that data and selling that story to those investors. And so you have to have really strong analytical skills. You have to be really good at Excel. You have to be really good at stakeholder management just to find who all the key players of getting that data from the company is. And then you have to be creative of going through and solving a problem of, okay, I just have this data, this Excel file of my widget price. The price to make one widget has gone from $3 to $150. What's all the 10 variables that go into widget making that would uh, describe the cost decrease? And so taking all that data and telling the investor, hey, here's our story within like a 50-page investor presentation slash memo and then a forecast model. And so you build trust with those investors by being able to articulate your story in that manner. Okay. So the data kind of speaks for itself. You don't have to like do a lot of, I mean, I'm not, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of social aspect to it. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't communicate. It doesn't have social media. That's not what I meant. 
I like know. there's not a social aspect. Like you don't have to like, oh, I love your tie or oh, let me take you to this restaurant for lunch or you know, like it's just like straight up. Here's the numbers. Here's what's up. Here's your here's your fortune being told, so to speak. Yeah, and so there there is a relationship like aspect. It's not like I'm telling people, oh, I really like your tie. Um, you are like building trust with all your stakeholders, and so you might go to lunch. You might fly to New York to get dinner with the investment bank you're working with. You might fly to San Francisco and meet with those investors investing in your widget manufacturing facility just to walk them through your company, build trust, maybe go out for lunch and dinner after. And so there's a relationship aspect uh, to this process, but it's really good. I feel like you would have to be incredibly trustful of people like you, basically, because if I were, you know, the CEO of a company, and I was thinking about, you know, expanding my company and like acquiring something new. You could send me over, you know, just all this data. Like you could send me over your, your forecasting spreadsheet. That doesn't mean I'm going to be able to read it. Yeah. You know, like you could go in there and you could make it look however it is the way that you wanted it to, to like kind of be screwing me over. And I would never know, even if I'm looking right at it. So mm-hmm. I feel like it makes sense to to have to have that, that like relationship trust building type of, you know, the, those experiences. Yeah. And there's like the part of the reason why you have those 300 page, like legal, like documents is basically saying, I could give you data that's like mm-hmm. made up. And like, I just put in random numbers in those spreadsheets. If that were to happen, the company, um, maybe that investor giving us money could like sue us. And so there's all these different terms and stipulations. And so obviously you're not just going to put like random numbers in an Excel spreadsheet and like send it over. And so it has to be like actual qualifiable data. And like, yeah, people- but you know, people do embezzle, like it is a possibility. So there's still, it's still like, is, you know, this is my money. I don't want to just give it to anybody. I don't want to yeah. give it to Bernie Madoff, you know? And to Caroline's point, too, uh, something that we haven't talked about is you have to have really good presentation skills to be in this type of environment, a corporate development or investment banking. I'm not I make a detailed financial forecast model of my company. I'm not going to just send my CEO that forecast model and say, hey, here, CEO, um, take my model. um, (laughs) Have fun. I'm going to have to. They have a lot of time and different things on their plate. And yeah, they have like five minutes to look at it. These Excel models are incredibly complex, like financial forecasts that maybe have a hundred different like Excel tabs and schedules go through together. And so basically your job as a corporate development uh, professional is to take all the data, all the model, all the financing forecast information and boil that down to basically like five slides on a, like five slides on a PowerPoint presentation of say, okay, we've looked at all this data, all this information. Here's the most important aspects of the deal, the company, why we're raising money, the terms of what we're raising money, and here's the timeline and the next steps and what we need from you. And so my job is to take all that information and boil it down into like a five-minute presentation for like a CEO of a company. So it sounds like there's a ton of trust in this field, which makes total sense to me. But like, can you have can you have a criminal record and work in finance? Can, can you have a criminal record and do what you do? Or does it kind of like <laughs> depend on what it is? Like, yeah, maybe we'll take someone with assault and battery, but not for robbery. 
So that's a good question. And so when you get hired into like any type of these roles, you go through detailed uh, criminal background checks. And so anyone that has that kind of like mistrust or they've done like an assault, a criminal battery, they're getting screened out at the beginning. They're not going to be in these types of roles. Cool. Okay. So if a deal goes bad, you don't have to worry about, (laughs) you know, getting beat up. <laughs> well, you might still. <laughs> you Maybe might not from that guy. Maybe from his people. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. If you're that, if you're that, at that level, you can just pay somebody to do it for you. Bless. Oh, and I keep saying, is it is it a male dominated field still, or are you seeing more mix? Yeah. So unfortunately, like banking, it's a role and a background that does not have a ton of diversity in it. Um, and diversity is a broad term. And so I would say your traditional investment banker, corporate development professional is going to be a white male, unfortunately. Um, that tracks. It's Yeah, tough. that's the picture that comes to my head. <laughs> it's tough working those hours and um, like the pressure and timeline that you go on. And so that like lifestyle and that like work profile is not for everyone. And so it's really hard to like have family have ha- managed like different um, work-life balance like aspects. And so there, there's pros and cons to working in investment banking, working in corporate development. And so a lot of people just choose not to follow this career path because they know in 10, 15 years, what does that look like? Where are my goals as a person? And it's probably, it's kind of hard to manage a lot of different things in terms of work and life and finding the right balance. And so some people self, se- sure. self-select out. A lot of people like that build trust that Caroline and Brittany have been talking about. It's this role is people find spots. It's not, they just post on bank123.com. <laughs> and, um, Sounds legit. People, people go through their personal networks uh, and referrals of, if I have a job that's opening up in six months, I'm going to go through my network, call 20, 10, 20, 50, people email out to some dealers and find the right person for that role based on I need to have trust in space. And so many people's referral network look exactly like they do. And the, uh, there's not okay. a diversity of opinion. There's not a diversity of people just because people naturally kind of bubble themselves up with people that look like them. What, yeah. Look and act like, like follows them. like, yeah. Birds of a feather. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. I totally understand that. I know like obviously there's going to be some people that fall outside of that, but it's interesting that it does still fall on tip white male dominated category. So what I'd like to hear, it sounds like your field has a lot of possibility for burnout. So let's say, you know, you are somebody who starts out in this career path and when you're younger, the hours aren't a problem. But then, like, once you do get older and you, your priorities start changing, what could that career path look like? Yeah, so there, there's multiple avenues for you to go through. And so the traditional way is to just move up the pipeline. Of the way work kind of falls is a traditional investment bank has analysts, associates, VPs, directors, and what's called a managing director. And so you have an army of analysts that are building Excel models in the weeds, understanding 
data, analyzing data, you have associates that are building PowerPoint presentations, making sure the data looks pretty, understanding what trends the data is telling and building compelling. Mm -hmm. You have a VP, you have a few VPs that are sitting above the analyst associates that are driving the execution of the deals of they're the ones negotiating with the lawyers are the ones um, managing the day-to-day -day relationship of clients, fielding all the phone calls, feeling, fielding all the questions and making sure the deal is getting done. They're basically quarterbacking the deal. And then you have directors, directors that are basically the head coaches um, coaching all those VPs and making sure those VPs have the support that they need to manage the day-to-day -day execution of it. While those MDs are coaching the VPs, they're also out flying and traveling around the world in the U.S., building relationships and um, kind of getting plugged into the industries, into the companies and saying, hey, we know you're not raising company. We're, we know you're not raising capital today, but in two years, we think you're going to need to raise capital. Here's why our capital, you should call us. And so that's kind of the traditional pyramid. Okay. And so as you move up the pyramid, there's less people in the pyramid as you go up each level, but your work-life balance gets a little bit better. Um, it basically becomes like a waterfall where the VP has a need. And so the VP sends that request to the associate, the associate sends that request to the analyst. And so you kind of, it's like, you have these tight deadlines of something needs to be done, let's say by 4 PM tomorrow. And so you kind of, the VP and the associate might be working today and then, okay, here analysts, it's 10 PM. Uh, here's what we need by 9 a.m. tomorrow so we can continue this like deal process. And so your work-life balance improves as you go up the chain up the funnel. What a lot of people do is they explore grad school um, after being in this role for two to six, eight years. And they go get their MBA or master's in business administration and pursue a variety, variety of uh, roles in business. You have a lot of people that go to the corporate side, um, similar to what I'm doing. And so one of the great things about corporate development is the hours are traditionally less than investment banking. A corporate development professional might work 55, 60 hours a week where your investment banker is gonna work anywhere from 70 to 100. And then you have, there's a wide range of roles. People go into consulting, people go into strategy, people go into traditional just corporate finance roles of building monthly and annual forecasts, uh, understanding variance, differences or variances between numbers. Um, there's a lot of skills that you can have. Investment banking is great because it gives you a really strong technical back background of understanding data, understanding uh, financial forecast, understanding Excel, understanding pre presentation, PowerPoint building, understanding managing key stakeholders and driving processes and valuing companies. And so it's a really great skill set and broad skill set um, that can set you up for success. All right, All so right. on paper, if someone were to apply to like the first basic level job or does anybody come into this field not start? And can you start Which really anywhere other than like corporate, not corporate finance, um, like investment banking? Yeah, so the crazy thing about this field is you basically start your sophomore or junior year of college. Whoa. <laughs> so if you don't know before then, it's not You're a out. Yeah. great. Wow. Good to know. And so the traditional path of getting into investment banking or getting into kind of like a corporate finance, corporate development type role is in college, you're going to have like summer internships that you go through in college. 
And so there's a variety of ways to get those summer internships. You're going to have banks and different companies come on campus to recruit. Um, there's traditional like pipeline recruiting. There's network building like I spoke about where people go out. Um, they're talking to a bunch of investment bankers. They're going to New York, Chicago, uh, LASF. They're having coffee. They're going to happy hours. And they're building those relationships with alumni and personal connections that now work in investment banking. And so when those investment bankers have roles, some are intern needs and hiring process, they're like, oh, I know Brad or Jane is really good. They're a sharp kid. They have a 4.0 GPA. They're doing well. They're very interested in the field. I'm going to submit their application on their behalf for this position and basically prep them for the interview process. I'm going to tell them all the questions that would get asked. I'm going to basically say, this is how I would think about it and kind of coach them for that internship application role. Okay. Okay. So you, you have to 100% have at least a four year degree to go into this field. Yes. Correct. Okay. And I would say from a top academic institution as well. So I went to kind of a large state school in the South. And so this state school puts some people in investment banking and some people in that higher finance trajectory. Um, But the banks are coming on campus to your top, top kind of tier schools, whether that be an Ivy League institution, whether that be uh, like one of the more like elite um, public schools, whether that's like a UVA, UNC, Cal, Michigan, Florida, et cetera. And so the key thing about, the like going for these interview processes as an intern is you you want to build trust uh, with your interviewers the people you're applying with and so there's multiple avenues to build trust with someone Uh, one way to do that is to go to the top school if you get into harvard you tell the whole world hey i'm really smart i got into harvard i can go i can handle prep stress pressure and understand what needs to get done to get into harvard and that's one way to build trust the other way to build trust is in network. So this job, this role, this profession, you have to be a constant and avid networker. You have to build relationships with many people over time. And so you have to be out there on the phone with all the alumni. You have to go to all the events. You have to really understand what banking is, why you want to be in banking, and build those relationships with the alumni um, or your personal connections in the space. And so you can overcome not being a Harvard student by building relationships with people that so when the time comes for a company to hire an intern, you're top of mind. Cool. All right. And so since this is something that you basically have to know that you want to do by the time you're like 19 years old, tell us about how you got to the decision that this is the path that you wanted to go through? Like, is this what you wanted to be when you grew up? Did you know what it was? So when I was in high school, um, I actually wanted to be an engineer. I thought engineering was the path for me. And then I found engineering to be really difficult. Um, Mm. I took advanced placement physics class where my teacher, instead of teaching us physics, would just show us episodes of the painter Bob Ross. (laughs) What? Oh, what a waste I, what? of time. <laughs> I disagree. I don't know how that teaches you <laughs> physics, but I don't think it's a waste of time. And so I really struggled like learning physics and like learning calculus. And so I was like, How did you just, take the AP test if you I didn't take a class? 
because I knew I knew Happy Little Trees, but I didn't know um, the magnitude and direct direction that vectors would need to go in. Um, well, that so, sounds different. Yeah. Yeah. So failed AP physics mm-hmm. test. But I was taking an economics class in high school, and I was looking forward to reading my textbook. I really just enjoyed learning about economics, <laughs> financial policies, financial decisions, how money and capital is allocated and raised, and how capital affects decisions. And I figured there's a whole lot of companies out there in the world. They all have money. They all have monetary and capital needs. Of They're going to be making investment decisions. They're going to be making... I figured if you knew how to manage money for a large company or institution, you would do well and there'd be job opportunities and growth for you. And a big thing too is when you're applying for college, applying to college is one of the biggest life decisions you'll make, especially at 18 years old. There's probably not one or two other life decisions as magnitude of applying to schools that you're making when you're 16 and 17. Mm -hmm. And so you can go in and look at for all the degrees that a school might have, what am I interested in? And what is the return on my investment? Because you're investing money. It costs a lot of money to go to school. You're investing (laughs) time. Four years is a really long time. You could go and do something else with your life. You could join the military. You could um, travel the world. You could be an Instagram influencer, a TikTok influencer. So you're really understanding, okay, what are my opportunity costs of if I'm going to spend four years and $200,000 getting a degree instead of being a TikTok influencer, um, I need I to feel get like if, I feel like if you're looking at it from the perspective at like 16 years of age, where like, what is my ROI on this investment? Like investment banking sounds like a really good field for you to pursue. Yes. <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. You said ROI and my brain jumped to release of information. <laughs> Okay, that's not, it's return on investment. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, the first rule of business world is there's going to be thousands of acronyms. Um, and sometimes they make sense and sometimes they don't. Yeah, but that's like a very investment banking decision. Of you have so many options and limited ability to cancel those options. And so there's always trade-offs to everything that you do and every decision. So you can go in and understand, okay, so finance grad from this undergraduate alma mater is probably making $110,000 per year after their first year of college. And so if that's a really strong return on investment, return on four years and uh, the investment that you're making just from your degree standpoint. And so I looked at, I was like, finance, I really enjoy learning about finance. I really like the fact that it pays well. Um, there's lots of job opportunities and growth areas in the field. And so that's kind of how I thought through the decision-making process. And so I went to that large state school, majored in finance. And so I joined all the finance clubs, spoke to a lot of finance professors. There would be alumni events of people at banks. ABC would come in, talk about their banks, why you should join their banks. And so that's how I kind of got involved into finance and on that path. All right, cool. Um have you enjoyed your time? Like, do you feel like this was the right decision for you and you're glad that you made that choice? Yeah, so the one thing I love about finance is it's really intellectually stimulating. Um, think about like investor investing in widgets or a mani- they're investing in that widget manufacturing facility company so that manufacturing company can build a new factory to double the plan of that company 
to really kind of hockey stick that company's growth. And so if you're the investor. Hockey stick? Hang on. Oh, sorry. So That's like, not what I'm familiar with. So a hockey stick? Like think about like players on ice, like playing hockey. I'm from the South. I don't think of hockey. Uh, <laughs> I do. <laughs> so a hockey stick kind of looks flat at the beginning and then angle the shaft of the stick kind of just goes up into the right. And so, like, a hockey stick growth profile is, like, you're looking flat at first. And then it just, oh, like, I see. Okay. All right. I'm on board. If you're an investor investing money, let's say you're the investor giving out those $200 million to a Ooh. company to build a new factory to double the growth and profile of their company. You're actually looking, let's say you have two weeks to make that $200 million investment decision. You're spending two weeks deep diving into a company, meeting the management team of that company. Maybe you're touring the facility of that company. And you're basically becoming like almost a mini expert of that widget manufacturing facility, understanding their business, understanding their growth profile, understanding the industry of how you make widgets, who's buying widgets, who's providing the supplies to be able to build a widget, and understanding how the money, the $200 million that you're giving that company is going to change the strategy of that company and so it's really it's really exciting you get to learn a lot and to be in finance you have to be an avid learner you basically have to be a professional nerd where you're excited about <laughs> details understanding new companies new business ideas new industries and understanding how everything kind of comes together hmm. i can I just imagine you like so excited just be like oh yes fresh spreadsheet <laughs> Bring, bring I have a question. Um, how okay, so I get what you do, how you do it, but how do you like become involved with a company? Do they just call out and be like, hey, we need money? Or do companies who have a lot of money say, Hey, we're looking to help other companies? Like, well, how do you get involved? Yeah, are you the middleman? Like, are you that company in between? Or is that what you used to do? Yeah, so I'll talk about it from the lens of my corporate development role now. So a big part of the role of the corporate development is managing all the stakeholders within the finance universe. And so if you're a company of a certain size and scale, people know that you exist. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you're Amazon, people Ooh. know that out there oh, yeah. finance needs. And so you're in that role of corporate development. Banks are what they call like pitching you of banks will reach out to you and say, hey, we're this great bank to work with. You should work, come work with us. And so they're <laughs> like ideas and um, they have like meetings with you. They're taking you out to lunch, dinners. They might take you to box seats at a Seattle Seahawks game or a Seattle Mariners game, like sporting events. And so they're building these like long-term relationships with you. So that when you're raising company, when you're buying a company and you need a bank to hire, you're the one that they call. So is it kind of like the other day when I got a little mailer in the mail that was like, hey, you should take out a personal loan through us. And I'm like, no, but is it kind of <laughs> like that? <laughs> one day. But let's say. Let's but much say, larger. Let's say you had a strong relationship with the person that sent you that mailer. Of, they've taken you out to dinner like every year for the past four years you you know them you played around a golf with them you've gone to have supporting them and they know that maybe they sent you the mailer of a 100k loan 
because they know you're about to buy a house, they know you're about to buy a car, they know you're maybe about to double the size of your family and you have future monetary needs. These banks are just saying, hey, come work with us. These banks are deeply understanding your company, your business profile, your financing needs, and coming to you at the right time with the right product and solution of saying, hey, you need to raise money now. We can do that for you. Hey, you're looking to buy this company. We can help you manage that process. Hey, you need um, a loan. We can give that to you. So it's not, it's a relationship, but it's a relationship where they understand your company. So it's kind of like goes back to earlier this week when I was talking to my lender about um, refinancing my house. Like I would never go anywhere else because I love her. Right. <laughs> I trust her so much. Like I don't even like, it's not even a possibility for me to go anywhere else. I will probably never get a mortgage loan from anyone else, but her, as long as I live. And you have options. You can go out and you could speak to 200 different lenders to refinance and get the best market rate. But you Yeah, but it's not about that. It's about the trust. Like I know that she's looking out for me. But you have to weigh the on that mortgage versus the trust and convenience of using that person. Um, And so you could go out to 200 people, get the best market rate and have not a relationship, but you're valuing the trust and Mm -hmm. ease access of refinancing that loan. And so that that's what a corporate development person does exactly what you're describing of you're weighing the trade-offs and the monetary needs of, okay, do I need the best rate for my financial profile of my person? Or um, is it just better and easier to go to the person I trust? Yeah, exactly. And then also, you have to also look at it from the perspective of if something were to like, go awry or like get weird or I mean I don't think it might so much in this particular like case but if you're investing 200 million dollars like stuff could go awry and you want to make sure that you're going into business with somebody that you do trust they're going to communicate with you they're going to make sure that you know if something is like going wrong on their end not only are they going to fix it but they're also letting you know what's going on. You're not just going to get blindsided by something. Yeah, that's really important. And the past 18 months have been kind of volatile um, in the financial markets and in banking. Um, I looked at Great companies. segue. I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> I had companies that were like heavily indexed to the travel industry. I had companies that were heavily indexed to live events. And so if you're a company that makes all your money from travel and entertainment and the world shuts down because of a black swan event, um, how do you manage that relationship, that process and understanding the needs of that company going through a once in a lifetime type event? And to, to your standpoint, it's all about building trust. Okay. I also want to just like say here, insert here, when he says black swan, he's not referring to the movie with Natalie Portman. Or... My mind has been spinning like, what did he, did I hear him wrong? It's a book. It's a, <laughs> it's a book. It's like a term and like, is it economics? I can't remember. I haven't yeah, read it's, it. It's basically an event that you could not foresee happening. It's like mind blowing event that like could never happen, but it happens. Like a worldwide pandemic. Okay. Yes. Not Natalie Portman. Not the ballet. Something totally <laughs> Don't different. <forget> Mila. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, of course. I could never. Um, yeah. So since such a huge portion of what you do relies on being able to make these these models that are you know one year out three years out five years out 
how like obviously nobody saw the well no nobody saw the pandemic coming like we did not plan for this and we're kind of just like adjusting accordingly based on our new normal how does that really look in your field yeah so when people build like a financial forecast model they do like different like modeling cases of say okay here is our normal case of we expect our earnings profile to go from 30 million to 300 million in year five they're also running an upside case of what if everything were to go right like we execute a hundred percent management's amazing we sign up every customer that we think we can everything goes smoothly what does our earning profile look like then and then dangerous game and people spend a lot of time and most of their time building what's called a downside case of okay things don't go to plan things don't go well what does the company look like and if I give that company $200 million and things don't go well, things don't go to plan, I don't execute as well, um, what happens? What does the financial forecast of that company look like then? And can they still exist as a company? Can they pay all their debts as a company? Can they hire and still make payroll and pay their employees as a company? And so you look through all those different factors. And so how you get comfortable building a downside case in your model is okay, so I build a manufa- I build a second manufacturing facility. Unless I have committed customers giving me saying, hey, we're gonna buy widgets from you tomorrow, and here is a signed contract saying you build a facility, I'm giving you widget orders. You could build a factory, spend two hundred million dollars building out that factory. You might not have a dollar of new sales if you don't have the customers and demand there to buy more widgets. And so you have to do a lot of data analysis. Uh, you have a customer sales pipeline that you kind of touched on in your uh, marketing uh, episode. And so I can take that customer pipeline um, now for the past five years and understand, okay, you have customers in different, you have prospects in different phases of the sales pipeline. You have cold prospects that um, they're just out there. Maybe you've emailed them. Maybe they've clicked on one email. You have customers that you're engaged with. You're having phone calls and conversations. You have customers that you're negotiating contracts with. And so a cold prospect looks a lot different than a customer that's in the middle of negotiating. Oh, yeah. And so I can take my pipeline data for the past 5, 10, 15 years, however long the timeline is, and understand, okay, I segment my sales pipeline from prospects to warm contacts to like hot, like we're redlining a contract and look at the conversion rate of, okay, for every customer that was a cold prospect the past five years, that um, translated into, let's say for every customer I re- that was a prospect, I received $100 of sales based on just the weighted average of that prospect, their conversion and what that profile looked like. And so you can take your existing pipeline today and if you know the historical conversion rate for the past five years and kind of basically, okay, I can take my pipeline today, discount it, understand, okay, these are how much sales opportunity I have today. If I don't go out and like hire more sales team, hire more marketing team, this is what I can realistically expect. And so as you're building that new manufacturing facility and widgets, you're like, okay, I know I have the demand there because I looked at my pipeline. I looked at my customer profile. And I understand that there's demand for my product. But if you build that manufacturing facility and there's no sales, your company's going to go underwater quickly. All I can think about right now is Kodak. 
something happen with Kodak? Yeah, they're basically <laughs> not in existence anymore. They were like the leading uh, like picture, photography, film, like all of that stuff company for like 150 years. And then all of a sudden digital came out and they were like, oh no, they, or they asked their customers, like, are you going to ever not want to like print your pictures? And their customers were like, of course, we always want to have pictures are printed. And so they didn't invest in digital photography and they like built Ooh. this massive campus, like up in upstate New York somewhere. And I mean, everything just bombed and like, you don't even hear about them anymore. Yeah. I had a blockbuster about a month ago. There's one blockbuster. Yeah. <laughs> And so it was like a blast in the past, but Blockbuster had the opportunity to buy Netflix years ago. And they said, no, we don't think Netflix is viable or a viable option like 10, 15 years ago. And look at Netflix now versus the one Blockbuster store. So, Oh, ouch. Yeah. I mean, there's like a, a statement in business where it's like too big to fail. And that may or may not be a real thing. Hmm. You gotta, you gotta watch out for the, the little guys. You never know. Okay. So we covered a lot. Um, you wanted to be an engineer when you were little, you have to start this like pretty early. You have to actually start scoping out your school, like in the, in high school when you're applying so that you go to the best one, because a lot of times your degree will speak for itself. Um, what else do you think people should know about your field? Yeah, so it's really, it's a heavy focus on understanding financial markets, understanding Excel, and then understanding how to build um, viable relationships with people, those kind of three uh, legs of the stool. And so the be- or great way to like get into finance is understand Excel, hit the alt. If you have Excel, it's a, this spreadsheet program on computers that's very viable in business. Hit the alt key and let it take you on a magic carpet ride where you're not, <laughs> you're not going to use, like try to become like an Excel power user where you can do things quickly and a signed uh, way. Um, just read the financial markets, read like Bloomberg, watch like CNBC and understand, okay, who are the companies they have stocks, there's raising money, companies are acquiring companies. We talked about Amazon buying Whole Foods. Like read into like why an Amazon would buy a Whole Foods. What's the strategy impacts? What was the price? What was the valuation of the pay? Just like start reading about that and getting kind of up to date on the terms of like why would Amazon buy Whole Foods? And then network, 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 network. You can never not network in this field. And so start talking to people that are in the finance of, hey, do you like your job? What do you do? What does your day to day look like? Um, how did you get into that role? And so you just start creating those connections. And so if you have all three prongs of the stool, um, you'll do it pretty well. Okay. And for anybody out there who would like to network with Nick, you can always reach out to us at honey with three Y's. I'm home podcast at gmail.com. Nice plug there. <laughs> yeah. Email to reach out to Nick or pretty much any of the other people that we've interviewed or will interview that's um, true. We'll connect you. Interviewed. Um, and so I, we're, we're kind of reaching the end of our time here. And so is there any final things that you would like to share, Nick? Um, I think we've covered all, but I, I just 
like to thank my host for letting me be on the podcast and platform and express my deep gratitude. Um, I think it's great for doing. Um, it's fun to hear your podcast and keep on doing it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We oh, you. <laughs> I have another question. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, are there certain parts of the world or country that are better for this job? Like, do you have to move or should you move? So finance jobs are going to be in your main hubs of like cities. Your main cities are like New York, LA, SF, Chicago, Charlotte, Seattle, Miami. And so to be in finance or want to do well in finance, you have to be like a big type person of you enjoy living in cities and the environment and lifestyle that a big city before you. I think my final question is kind of silly, but who is your favorite shark on Shark Tank, Nick? I <laughs> I like Mark Cuban. He's like nice. He's like really detailed, um, authoritative, but he's like nice. He's not like Mr. Wonderful. <laughs> I don't like that bald guy, whoever he is. Mr. Wonderful. Oh, yeah. He <laughs> sucks. <laughs> you don't think he's wonderful? No, not a little bit at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for sharing you know, how happy little trees kind of changed your life and (laughs) how you got to be where you are today. It's been really insightful and um, it's nice to know what you do and not think, not think of you like our, our Chandler Bing anymore. (laughs) Great closing statement. We love you, Nick. (laughs) Have great time at the wedding. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hello. All right. Well, everybody, I hope that you enjoyed listening to our friend Nick talk about his job and what exactly it means to be in investment banking and all of the other stuff that he talked about. Right. And, you know, like just on a very surface level, if you're seeing memes out there about finance bros and didn't get them before, maybe you kind of do now, but maybe you'll see it in a positive light. Absolutely. And I feel like with something like that, it very easily could go in a bad direction. But I think that there are people out there like Nick who legitimately find their jobs in like finance just absolutely interesting. And they have a lot of passion for it. And so for them, it's not about like this means to whatever this like Wolf on Wall Street kind of lifestyle is, it's more of a, this is something I'm legitimately interested in. And this is a good fit for me and my, my interests, my skills, my talents, things like that. Yes, ma'am. I totally agree. (laughs) (laughs) I did get a little lost. I'm not going to lie a couple of times, but that might just be a me problem. (laughs) I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he lives in a very corporate world. And so if you're not familiar with being in a corporate world, it definitely, it definitely could get, you could get lost in that. Yes. That's a good way of putting it. We live in very different occupational worlds. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. You occupy different spheres and like no one is better or worse than the other. They just are different and they just operate differently. Exactly. And there's a lot of terminology in the business world that you may or may not know, like black swan. Like for yeah, didn't know that one. <laughs> almost everyone else that means something different. <laughs> uh, 
oh, or what was it? The hockey stick or oh yeah, that just was a bunch a new of one them. For me. <laughs> it makes total sense once you kind of went in, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Like a lot <laughs> of the stuff that like is this like corporate jargon makes sense once you know what it is. But once, but before that, you're like, I'm sorry, why, why did we start talking about Natalie Portman? Like, where did that come from? <laughs> One that we didn't talk about, which I've heard Nick say quite often, is out of pocket. And like to me, out of pocket means like, oh, an expense you had to pay for yourself. But I've heard Nick use it and he said that he got it from his, you know, like work atmosphere as like kind of like out of line. So, like say somebody says something rude to you oh that was out of pocket that blows my mind because it's not at all how I use that phrase I've actually never heard that in any of the offices that I've worked in either so I don't know I've seen it online too I sent you something the other day that like used it in the same way and I was like ah it breaks my brain (laughs) I believe you that it's been used (laughs) but I think that 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 also kind of opens up this whole idea too of different like yes it's all corporate yes there's a lot of like jargon that gets shared but also this is a big country there are a lot of companies <laughs> here Definitely. everybody's kind of operating on like their own like individual way and their own individual like communication styles it kind of reminds me of like high school Spanish class our teacher was trying to or our profe was trying to tell us that um like some countries that speak Spanish use padre as cool but like it means father (laughs) yeah I mean that's like one of the hardest things I think about language in general is like yes here is the like dictionary meaning of this word that's not how people use it though (laughs) you know it'd be really cool (laughs) it'd be really cool to have someone who studies language yeah yeah well so if you are somebody out there (laughs) and you have some sort of career maybe in like linguistics or like whatever and you would like to come on and tell the world about what it's like to work in a field that has a lot to do with like languages we'd love to have you yes 100% so that was Nick's episode that was finance um one aspect of it (laughs) Yeah, that's, I think that's also a really important distinction here. Yes, Nick is in finance, but that is what he was talking about yesterday is not like normal finance. He's in a very specific field of finance. (laughs) It's today in podcast world. (laughs) (laughs) A moment ago, really. (laughs) Right, right. The the moment that we talked to Nick, that was definitely not... That was definitely just a minute ago. <laughs> Y'all, we will talk to you more in the weekly updates that we're going to try out and see if it works, but it has been a crazy week. <laughs> it's It's been the kind of week that providing an update was just, like, not happening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's bring in the trees. Let's bring in the trees. Bye. Bye.